Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with Dr. Vance Vrendenberg. During our conversation, Vance talks about the history of extinctions on Earth, his influential paper, Are We in the Midst of a Sixth Mass Extinction?, and what humans can do to decrease extinction rates throughout the world. All right. Well, Vance, uh, first of all, wanted to thank you for, for taking the time to sit down and talk. Um, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Cool. Well, we'd love to start by learning a little bit about you uh, personally. I know you, know you have an interest in amphibians and, and in science. Um, where, where does that come from? Have you always sort of been scientifically inclined? How did you get interested in the, in the subject generally? I think I've always been, been really interested, actually, from, from – uh from my early years, I've always been really interested in how things work and, and in particular, how things work outside. And I've always just been a curious person. I think people that are really curious tend to be uh, sort of naturally good at science mm-hmm. because what we're trying to do is explain the unexplained. Yeah. Was your interest in science always sort of directed to like the biological sciences or was it sort of more wide ranging to additional subjects? It's always sort of been more biological. Yeah. I actually, for a while, I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. Okay. Until I realized uh, I'm definitely afraid of needles. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided that's a bad idea. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, so, you know, here we are at San Francisco State. What, what was sort of the, the journey for you getting here? Did you uh, sort of grow up in the Bay Area and want to be in San Francisco? How did you end up here at the school? So I actually, uh, I actually grew up in Mexico as a kid. My mm-hmm. mom's family is from Mexico. So I spent my summers, my family would drive from Mexico City all the way up to Canada. Um, and so that, that's when I really got the experience going camping with them and that yeah. sort of thing, car camping, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so I grew up in Mexico and then um, went to high school in Texas, mm-hmm. junior high and high school in Texas. And then when we came, when I went to grad, sorry, to undergraduate, Mm -hmm. I went to uh, out here to California, UC Santa Barbara. And then once I was in California, I just sort of fit with the way I like to live a lot, I guess. So I like, I really like the public school system here in California, higher education. And it's just worked really well for me. So I went from undergraduate UC Santa Barbara, and then uh, I worked for a few years doing research. And then I sort of realized, wow. Maybe I could do my own work instead of yeah. working for other people. And I had some fantastic opportunities as an undergraduate, um, working in the Antarctic mm-hmm. and working in the, off the Channel Islands in California, in in the Caribbean, um, and then in the Sierra Nevada here in California. And that's mm-hmm. where I sort of found this project. Cool. What does what does research for someone who is you know, not that familiar with with the sort of field work that you may have done? What is a a day in the field look like, and and what was it about that that was particularly appealing for you personally? Um, so the day in the field, you know, really varies depending yeah. on where you are, of course, from Antarctica to Alaska to yeah. you know, I mean, uh, you know, when I was working as a scuba diver researcher, um, a day in the field meant getting up at the crack of dawn and mm-hmm. um, getting out in these little skiffs and putting on a scuba tank and literally jumping in the water um, before the light before the sun was up. Mm-hmm. And watching the reef animals uh, sort of wake up in the morning, so we could get a whole day's worth of data. Mm. Um, the working terrestrially obviously is a very different uh, story. Working on now the kind of work that I do now, which is working on amphibians, mm. but it really it gives you a connection to nature. 
in a way that most other uh, types of jobs uh, aren't, you know, don't give don't don't give you that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the one of the places I spent a lot of time, sort of learning how to be a scientist was when I was a graduate student at Berkeley. I worked in the Sierra Nevada, mm-hmm. and I did all this work uh, basically with a backpack and a few frog nets, and um, and I lived in a tent. And uh, I mean, it was really an amazing experience. At mm-hmm. one point, I. I was uh, I didn't see another human for four and a half weeks, and it was really an amazing experience. Mm. And you, I guess, when you're on assignment like that and you're doing scientific research, there's just you in a tent and you're going out there and collecting samples from nature. I, I assume and and doing that on your own and being trusted to do that work. Um, is that a fair assessment of what that month was like? And has it become more difficult to get the funding to do research like that or not necessarily? Yes. So definitely it's gotten more difficult. Um, I mean, just as an example, in the National Science Foundation, the mm-hmm. panels that I apply for funding, um, uh, the funding rate right now is somewhere around 6%. Mm-hmm. And maybe 15 years ago, it might have been closer to 20%. So the funding rates have really gone down, um, mostly in the sense that the um, there hasn't been more money made available, and yet we're training all these PhDs mm. and everyone. So there's a lot more people applying for a pot of money that hasn't been growing. Uh, yeah. That's part of the problem, but there's, uh, there's other issues as well. In terms of like what it's like in the field and collecting data, you know, it varies so much from place to place. Um, for, for a couple of years, I worked on a research boat in the Antarctic where we were, you know, there were 40 scientists on board. And decisions were made at a much higher level than than I was just working as a lowly technician. But I learned a lot, you know, and I realized that um, in many cases, scientists have to work in really tight cohesion to mm-hmm. collect information. For example, when they're on an icebreaker that costs $20,000 a day to run. Or uh, you can have the other extreme, which is what I went to after that, which was working out of my backpack where I was the only person out mm-hmm. there. Um, and I had goals that I had. Um, I had... Uh, you know, um, numerous populations that I wanted to sample, mm. both collecting scientific t- like tissue, like mm-hmm. DNA, yeah. um, but I also wanted to just count populations. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of up to me. If I wanted to take a day off, that's fine. But I usually didn't because I enjoyed the work, and the more data I could get, the better picture I could paint of what was happening up there. Mm. Is the stress level of a day of actually collecting samples significantly higher than just going for a walk in the woods? I mean, is the distinction between work and play noticeable in your head, or do you sort of view that as sort of one and the same? That's a really good question. People uh, people joke with me about that, like, oh, it must be really fun. I have like a field season. I have a, a field sites all over the world. I have one in the Philippines, one in South America and Peru. And people are like, oh, wow, that must be great. You got your summers off and you go. And what they don't realize is it isn't incredibly stressful. You know, you have a really limited amount of time to collect the data that you want to collect. And if it rains or if there's a lightning strike or something and you can't, you know, it's not safe to be out there, mm. you can't get any data and you have no, you know, you're dead in the water basically. Mm. So it can be incredibly stressful. So I would say like it's incredibly enjoyable because I enjoy being outdoors and I enjoy understanding um, you know, get, gaining a, a, an understanding of what's going on in the natural world. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like going through a walk of the woods and actually knowing what the woods are. Mm-hmm. You know, you see things that people for the first time don't see. Right. Um, on the other hand, there are things you have to get done mm. because um, if you don't, 
then you're not going to be around very long. Mm. I mean, doing you're not going to be doing that kind of thing for very long, if that makes sense. Yeah. What does a walk in the woods look like to you? I mean, when you go and you're on a, a you know, a, a, a scientific research trip and, and you're alone or, or even with, with other scientists, is there, you know, if you had an, a layman with you, what what sort of world are you viewing when you see the woods like that? Do you see the just the general biodiversity? Do you uh, pick out certain things that just most people would never notice? How does, how does it look when you walk walk through the woods? Well, that's a great question, and it totally varies on what the yeah. what the reason for the for the walk is. So, I teach a natural history class here at SF State, and when we walk through the woods, then I'm I'm looking really broadly mm-hmm. across. Uh, for example, looking for from birds to snakes to salamanders and frogs, and you know we're trying to sort of find as much as we can so that people can see, so the students can see what it's like mm-hmm. and see what they are and learn how to identify those things. But in terms of like strictly research uh, walk through the woods, mm. it's very different. Um, yeah. So, for example, I, I have a project right now that's looking at salamanders here in California. And to find a salamander in California, you usually have to look under what we call cover objects. So if you go on a hike in the woods with someone like me doing research, you won't get very far because every five feet we're mm. stopping to roll a log over or a big uh, rock or um, you know just basically looking in – every microhabitat we can to see mm. if we can find any of these animals. And if we do find them, then it's really exciting because now we get to collect data on them. So mm. we'll do things like we'll, um, we'll give each animal a number, you know, and we'll put, those, put that information in our notebooks. And we'll, I work on a communicable disease mm-hmm. in amphibians. It's a fungal disease. And so we collect data by taking what looks like a Q-tip and rubbing it on the skin of the frog or mm-hmm. the salamander. Mm-hmm. And then we can we take a bunch of measurements on the salamander or frog. How big are they? How much do they weigh? What sex? What species? Who are they close to? What kind of cover object are they under? Everything we can, even air temperatures and uh, the, the moisture content of the air. It's crazy, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And then we let the animal go. But we may catch 10 or 15 animals in one little spot. Mm-hmm. So we may not be leaving that spot for half an hour while we take all the information down. Right. So it can be really um, – it can be really fun, but it's super intense. Yeah, your your specificity and sort of your specialization in, in amphibians. Where did that come from specifically? Were you always sort of tracking towards that level of, of expertise with that specific group of animals, or, or how did that happen exactly? I was actually. It didn't. I haven't always been an amphibian person. Yeah. I grew up in a part of Mexico actually that doesn't have um, a. Although Mexico has a great biodiversity in terms of amphibians. The area that I lived in didn't have a lot of a uh, lot of species there, mm-hmm. um, so I wasn't really I didn't really know what amphibians were until later in my life. So I actually got interested in amphibians um, through conservation. Mm. So one of the things I realized very quickly when I got into understanding the natural world was you know all around us you mm-hmm. can see that there are, there are major problems happening, and I wanted to contribute to that, not just contribute to a textbook. I wanted to contribute to trying to preserve what's out mm. there because I've been lucky enough to really recognize the beauty and the life and life that's out there. Mm-hmm. And so I've worked really hard to try to do that. And I ended up working on amphibians not because they're amphibians per se, but mm. because they're one of the most threatened group of vertebrates in the world. And it didn't really make sense. So these uh, amphibians have been around for 360 million years. So they're one of the oldest of all vertebrates. They've done extremely well during that, during that tenure on Earth. They've made it through the last four mass extinctions. Mm. I don't want to say unscathed, but they've done it quite well. Mm-hmm. 
And yet in the last 40 or 50 years, they've, um, they're, they're going through a huge contraction, mm. a huge extinction event. And in many of those places where they're going extinct, they appear to be completely pristine, like Yosemite National Park, Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park, and other really well-protected areas around the world. So that's what really got me going was the mystery of it, mm. uh, which is really what got me into science as well. But this is a place where science and conservation really um, cross paths and, and join paths in a sense. Mm. For people that haven't taken a biology class in a while, just as a general definition of, of what an amphibian is, if you could just describe who they are, wh- where they fit in. Uh. You bet. So amphibians, so there are three kinds of amphibians. Um, there are the frogs and toads. Mm. There are the salamanders. And there are these things called Sicilians. So mm. these are the three orders of, of amphibians. Um, they've been on Earth, as I said. They're, they're one of the first land vertebrates. Okay, so they're a very, very ancient group of vertebrates. Mm. Um, the fishes, of course, are the oldest group of vertebrates. Mm. And then amphibians are, are probably the next ones. They've, um, they, they're different from other um, vertebrates in the sense that one of the particular things that they have different is that they produce – they have special glands in their skin that mm. allow them to produce toxins. So there's a lot of things that – people have heard of these things like poison dart frogs, that mm. sort of thing. Um, they're, um, they're really quite amazing also because they have a metamorphic life cycle, at least many of them do, where they have part of their life cycle as a uh, metamorph – sorry, as a larvae, like a tadpole. Um, and then they metamorphose um, into these completely different organisms, these frogs um, or large salamanders that look and uh, live completely different lives. So they're really amazing. And one of the things that's so cool about amphibians, they've been around for so long that there are so many different types of ways that they make a living mm-hmm. that it's really quite remarkable. Are they found all over the world or only really in, in certain specific areas? They're, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, they're found almost all over the world. Mm-hmm. There, there are a few areas where there aren't any amphibians like Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, although there used to be, they used to be there when they were part of Gondwana land, mm-hmm. when Antarctica was part of Gondwana land. So mm-hmm. that's how old these lineages are. And I, I want to talk to you more about about uh, amphibians specifically, but you, you mentioned the the five major extinctions in in the history of of life on Earth. Um, I know there's a lot of detail. I'm sure you could go into if you, if you could um, maybe give a brief synopsis of of those five uh, mass extinction events and and maybe the one that's the most significant in your mind. Uh, speak to it maybe a, a little bit more length. Well, so the. We're talking over – this is over you know, huge timescales. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, there have been more than five mass mm-hmm. extinction events. Those are just the sort of the biggest events. So you know, one of the things that evolutionary biologists like to point out is that extinction is a natural part of, uh, of life on Earth. Mm-hmm. And um, something like 99% of all species that have ever existed have gone extinct. Mm-hmm. That sounds a little strange to say that today because then we're like, well, if, you know, if that's the case, then why do we care so much about what's here today? Well, the, the point is, is that although there's so much today, one thing you have to remember is that the length of time that we're talking about is almost unimaginable to humans. So, you know, we, you know life has been around for a really, really long time. And of those five mass extinction events, the first one occurred during a time when life was really not very recognizable mm-hmm. to what we see today. There were no vertebrates, or there, there, um, there was little representation in that in terms of vertebrates. It's the last four major events that have happened during the tenure of vertebrates. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would say um, 
you know, most people know about the – I mean, everybody knows about dinosaurs. That's the first thing they come up. And one of the things I always like to bring up is that when the dinosaurs went extinct, um, although some of their lineages survived, or one in particular, the birds, mm-hmm. um, they, you know, their imprint on Earth um, is gone. The imprint of amphibians hasn't really changed. Mm. Um, there are species today that you can find that are ecologically identical to what they were like, you know, hundred million years ago. There's a salamander that was found in um, in the Caribbean recently um, that was in uh, resin, mm. and that salamander, you know, looks incredibly similar to these salamanders that are alive today. Mm. And that was, uh, you know, it's, it's 100,000 years old. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty amazing. You know, the tenure of these animals on Earth has been really incredible. Mm. So um, so getting back to the mass, mass extinction mm-hmm. events. So these are, these are events that take place not over tens of years, not over hundreds of years, but over millions of years. Mm-hmm. And um, there's still a lot of debate about what exactly caused mm-hmm. these extinction mm-hmm. events. While there have been some extinction events, one in particular that was caused by the change, basically uh, the change of the atmosphere of the earth, that's when basically plants started changing the mixture of atmosphere mm. on earth. Um, that, was a, that was caused by species. Mm. That was one of the earlier ones. That one um, basically uh, was a biological change caused mm-hmm. – uh, sorry, a massive extinction caused by biology. Yep. Sort of what's going on today, except that you know now it's just one species, and that species happens to be conscious of what it's doing. Mm-hmm. That's quite different. Mm. The other mass extinction events, the ones in between those bookmarks, um, are really caused by things like bolide impacts, so like asteroids hitting mm-hmm. the Earth, mm-hmm. or uh, volcanic eruptions that mm-hmm. are causing... Uh, that basically caused big changes, not only you know locally but mm-hmm. also globally mm-hmm. from volcanic kind of activity. Mm-hmm. So these these were really massive things that changed the way that um, that changed the balance of life in mm-hmm. terms of who the winners and losers were. I know um, you mentioned. I think you're right that that most people know when they think of a mass extinction, they immediately think of of the dinosaurs going extinct and, and what caused that. Um, if I remember correctly, there's one one of the one of the five that caused, in terms of just general wiping out of the percentage of life on Earth, that was far greater than any other. Something like ninety percent of all life on Earth. If, if you could speak to what what caused that and how that happened. Well, that would be the the earliest mass extinction mm. that I that I hinted to earlier, oh. which was the one that actually changed the atmosphere of the Earth. Mm. So that one caused uh, more damage than any of the other ones. Mm in the sense that it just changed who could actually survive under mm-hmm. those circumstances. Um, so I, I, believe that's, I believe that's the one that was the most impressive mm-hmm. in that sense. And it was a game changer because it didn't just, you know, wipe out some area, you know, like some geographic area gets wiped out by a volcano or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, it's, or, or a bolide impact mm-hmm. or a tsunami or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that are changing the way that life works right. as opposed to just killing what's there and then some things recover. Right. And that, that's a big difference if you think about it. Um, so the, the change of the atmosphere was you know, an enormous event mm. in Earth's history. Mm. And in a sense, we're kind of doing that now. No, not in a sense. In reality, we are changing that right now. And, and I want to talk about that. And it was a, a paper that you co-wrote that was titled in the form of a question of, I believe it was, are we entering uh, the sixth extension or are we experiencing the sixth extension? 
Um, and it was a, a view of, of that through amphibians. Um, are we? <laughs> well, I think it's actually quite clear. If, um, you know, one of the ways that you know you're, you're doing something right is when other people start using that same idea over mm. and over again. And since we published that paper, that almost that exact title has been used uh, multiple times. There's been a Pulitzer Prize winning book. Uh, there have been numerous uh, papers and uh, and also um, sort of non-scientific sort of books and essays and that kind of thing using that same title. And I think, you know, the scientists are really um, conservative in a good way mm -hmm. in the sense that we don't like to wave our arms and say the sky is falling until we have data to back up what it is we're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is we're saying, and so with the six, six mass extinction paper, it is kind of a big deal, you know, like saying we're entering a mass extinction event right now, and that's that's kind of a big deal because if you look at the history of mass extinction events, the previous ones all happened over much longer timescales. Even if you take the present mass extinction, the six mass extinction event, and use the biggest boundaries possible in terms of time, we're only talking about ten thousand maybe more mm. years, not thousands of years, not millions of years. So if you talk about the extinction of the ma you know, large mammals mm -hmm. um, that, Tony, uh, that Barnowski, Tony Barnowski has written about and others, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the longer, the long now view of what's going on in terms of extinction in the sixth mass extinction. And um, I think you know, it's, it's a pretty bold step to say we've entered the sixth mass extinction. But David Wake and I thought, that we had a pretty good case to be made with this one ancient and quite successful group of vertebrates, the amphibians. And what was the evidence that you primarily pointed to to, to develop that argument? And, and also, I'm curious if, if this is applicable to uh, other species outside of amphibians as well. So the evidence that we used was um, the what has occurred with amphibians in the last 40 years. Amphibians um, are a small enough group that uh, we can get a handle on them yeah. as opposed to, let's say, all of plant life. Mm -hmm. um, there's only about 7,400 species of amphibians these mm -hmm. days. So it's a number that if you put together all the people that work in amphibians and try to make an assessment of what's happened, um, we can try to decide like what's going on with all known species, everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened in a science paper that was published in 2004. And David Wake was one of the first people that sort of noticed that that people were talking about amphibian populations disappearing enigmatically in different mm. parts of the world. And, um, and that was about 1989, 1988, 1989, when he um, started noticing that, he and others. Um, and it took from, 19, from that time in the late 80s until um, 2004 for a worldwide assessment to occur. It was mm. the first worldwide assessment that was done for any of the world's vertebrates. Mm. Now we have one for birds, for mammals, for I believe there's one in the works for fishes, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And it's really important for us to do that because we're basically taking stock. What right. do we know? Right. And for every single species that was described in the world, scientists took a stab at it. And we said, what information do we have mm. about their status? Mm. And we used very definable criteria and came up with a status. And one of the things we found, which was hugely surprising, <clears throat> is that over a third of the world species were in decline and or uh, threatened. Mm. 
almost 42% of the world species had suffered in one way or another. So maybe the whole species wasn't in decline, but part of their distribution mm. was in major trouble. Um, that's astonishing mm. when you think about it. And you know, if you had asked before this amphibian decline stuff started happening, if you had asked evolutionary biologists or conservation biologists, any kind of biologist you could think of, what's the most endangered group of vertebrates in the world? I guarantee you they wouldn't have said amphibians. They mm -hmm. would have said probably mammals or birds mm -hmm. because those are the really visible ones that we know about. People know about the passenger pigeon, mm. but they don't know about the relic frog mm. um, or they don't know about the cave salamander. Mm. Um, they may not know these situations, but what we did um, leading up to that paper, and by we, I mean the scientific community in mm. general, we basically did an assessment and found that this was really um, it was a really bad case. And if you look back through evolutionary time for what we know from the fossil record in amphibians, their presence um, can be found throughout the entire fossil record despite the fact that there are these major extinction events. Mm. So the lineages of amphibians made it through this, uh, through these previous uh, extinction events very, very well. I mean, the tree was probably pruned, but it, major branches mm. survived quite well. And is the decline with with all of the different animals that have been that have been analyzed? You mentioned that there uh, was a, a documentation in a paper about birds and, and others as well. Um, is it just the amphibians that are declining at a rate that would classify as trending towards extinction, or or the others as well? Well, w the way we um, interpreted the information that we had was that the amphibians gave us the first world view mm. of how bad things were. But unfortunately, they're not the only ones. Mm. Um, and if it was just the amphibians, then we could focus in on that and try to figure out what was going on. But it turns out that if you look at um, other vertebrates as well, mammals, especially if you looked at the last 10,000 years, mm. uh, but mammals for sure, uh, there are many have either gone extinct or are, not, or, 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 or are on the brink of extinction. Mm -hmm. um, birds as well. Fishes and not just vertebrates either. You start expanding out to other groups of species as well. And, we, and one of the things we see is that there is this overwhelming um, body of evidence that's building that's showing that we really are at the beginning of a, an extinction event. Mm. And with with the amphibians specifically, is as, as you said, if if this is true, then this is the first time that potentially a conscious animal who is causing this sort of problem is is aware of of its responsibility. Um, what is the evidence for amphibians specifically that, that this is um, in part or in, in entirety a human caused? That's a great question. So with amphibians, we're talking about not just, you know, a dozen or so species that, that have gone extinct or in trouble. We think we have at least 200 species that have gone extinct mm -hmm. in the last few decades. 200 species. That's way more than we've documented in other groups in the last 100 years. Mm. We have another 500 species that are in decline, and we have at least 2,000 species affected, negatively affected by, um, by different factors. Now, human activities are at the very top of that. Mm. If you look at the different factors that describe um, these reasons why amphibians have mm -hmm. gone extinct, most of the reasons are habitat destruction. Mm. Um, there's no doubt that if you go and uh, you know chop down the rainforest and put in a parking lot or some other kind of development or a, um, a farm for cows, you're changing that habitat. And anything that lived there, if, they're, if their entire species lived in that area, they're gone and mm -hmm. they're gone forever. And that's probably one of the most important impacts. But even, but that, you know, we can, 
work with that into the future. We can figure out ways to not destroy habitat. We can try to uh, restore some of the habitat. Mm. But it's the other, the, what we called the enigmatic declines that really got us worried about a six mass extinction. Mm. And that was where we had species going extinct in areas that were highly protected, like Yosemite National Park and others uh, throughout the world. And those are places where humans have decided, society has decided that we are going to try to preserve mm. these places, these beautiful places, and you know preserve them um, from development, from pollution, from other sources of uh, negative sources of uh, intended and unintended consequences by humans. And yet we're losing species in those areas. So um, so the, it was these enigmatic declines that got us really, really worried. So where, where is – so humans are involved both directly in the decline of amphibians by destroying the habitat, mm-hmm. by increasing levels of pollution – uh, by spread and by spreading non-native species, mm. both intentionally, like with trout mm. into the mountains, and unintentionally, as with diseases. Mm. So we are for sure on the hook in terms of the effects that humans are having. Those are the direct influences, mm. but there's also indirect influences like climate change, mm. where we're we're figuring out that now just putting a fence around a habitat and preserving it is not enough enough because we are actually changing the entire ecosphere, the entire planet. Just like those species changed the atmosphere in one of the previous extinctions. When you talk about this and present this evidence to the public, and I'm sure you talk to a wide range of different people with different political views and different priorities and values, how do you try to reach as many people as possible? Do you posit this as we have a responsibility to preserve the beauty of nature. Do you preserve this as this is in our own self-interest to uh, conserve these animals? Um, how do you go about trying to make people have this resonate with people and make them do something about it or, or change their mind or, or those sorts of things? I do all of the above because I really think that it's not one thing or another. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know we ethically, um, we have... Uh, a really good reason to try to do something about these things. If humans are involved and we're leading to the decline of these species, just ethically we should we should take um, responsibility for that. I also think that from the like beauty side of things, there's something to be said for the world that we live in. Mm. We we like to live in a beautiful world. Mm. I mean, there are so many benefits, mm. both ones that you can quantify um, and ones that you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and humans. You know, we we have a lot of unquantifiable aspects of our lives, yeah. and and we need to also pay attention to those. Um, I also appeal to people, you know, be, about future generations. You know, I have children, yeah. and I want my children to see uh, the beauty of this world that we live in, mm-hmm. and I want to live in a way that's sustainable because, you know, we have seven billion people on Earth now, and many people. Um, not too long ago, in the 1960s, we're saying that that was going to destroy the earth beyond all, you know, all reason. Mm-hmm. And the truth is we're still here and mm-hmm. we're still doing okay in a lot of ways. So I like to also like motivate people by telling them that there is a positive side to all this. Mm-hmm. Not just the self-preservation side, but there is a positive side mm. to understanding the factors that are leading to these extinctions mm. and to – um, either postponing, hopefully permanently, yeah. or reversing the declines of these species. 
So let me just give you one real-world example. Mm -hmm. So I work on this disease in amphibians called chytridiomycosis. It's a fungal uh, fungal pathogen that causes causes the disease. It looks like all indications are that humans have moved this fungus around by accident. The fungus um, that's and it's been devastating amphibians, especially even in these uh, uh, protected areas. Mm. Um, this one species of fungus, Batrachochytrium dendrobotitis, has driven probably 200 species to extinction, 200 species of frogs and, and salamanders to extinction. No single pathogen that we know of in the history of Earth has caused that much damage. So don't you think we should understand how that works? Mm-hmm. Uh, I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm glad it doesn't affect mammals. Um, luckily, it doesn't. Um, but we need to understand the underlying biology behind this. Mm. What's really interesting about the story of, of chytrid, this fungus, is that most many of these enigmatic declines we now think are, dis, are basically explained by the arrival and invasion of this fungus. Mm. So many of these amphibian populations started disappearing in the early 1980s. It happened in California. It happened in Australia. It happened in uh, Central America. It happened in South America. All over the world, uh, this started. This sort of event started occurring in these protected areas. It turns out that 20 years later, we figured out what it was. In 1999, um, we described. We actually described what this fungus was. Mm. 1999. Mm. So the first decline actually in California was 1978, mm. in in the yellow-legged frog in Sierra Nevada an unexplained mass die-off in Sequoia National Park. Mm. The next one was in, in Brazil. The next one was in Central America. Mm. Um, well, it looks like that those declines actually occurred because of this fungus. Mm. So fast forward now to the present, and I can tell you the next fungal pathogen that's occurred with amphibians is uh, another type of chytrid fungus that's mm. very closely, relatively closely related to chytrid, mm-hmm. and it's another kind of chytrid, same genus, different species. Mm-hmm. Um, that one uh, was found in Europe. It was described in 2013. By 2014, we had already scientists had already figured out where this pathogen came from, mm-hmm. identified it, described it, figured out where it came from, and how it probably got there. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we're, we're learning a lot, and we're getting much better at figuring out what's going on. And I think that that gives me a lot of yeah. hope because these um, these pathogens, for example, these emerging diseases that amphibians are facing, um, it turns out it's not just amphibians; it's happening in bats and bees and plants mm-hmm. and humans. And the you know people what people tend to forget is that the same underlying biology links together these different things. Mm. When you think about uh, the future, sort of looking forward a little bit, you mentioned your, your kids. Um, is it your opinion that there are things that we can do to to avert a sixth mass extinction, or are there uh, certain things in this process that are, frankly, just inevitable at this point? Well, I think you know a lot of damage has been done. There's de- there's no doubt about that. So I don't want to sound like a Pollyanna, but there there definitely has been a lot of damage done. But I also know that life is tenacious Mm. and um, things will hang on, sometimes in surprising ways. Mm. There have been already, um, just in the last few years, we've rediscovered 
um, numerous species of amphibians that we thought were extinct. So they've been hanging on in a few places. And I think um, we're getting to the point now where we have the opportunity to actually um, provide a pathway for them to survive. Mm. Uh, we understand now a lot more about how this pathogen works, for example. Um, and we know what we can do about it. Um, and in some cases, anyway, we, mm. can, we can actually reverse that. So I'm actually pretty hopeful not to say that there's no damage done. There's a lot of damage that's been done. But I, re I really do think that people are incredible in terms of the, the potential that people have, their mm. creativity, their ability to um, really, you know, decide they're going to do something mm -hmm. and just not stop until they do mm -hmm. it. And in some cases, those can be negative things. But in many cases, those are positive. Mm. And I, I really think that, you know, if we can – if we can solve some of these issues in terms of conservation, in terms of understanding the mechanisms that are leading to these terrible patterns that we've been documenting, mm -hmm. uh, I think we can start working on these mechanisms and, and coming out with a positive outcome. Mm. Last question I want to ask you is, is to, regarding that issue. If, if, you, if you were giving policy advice or you were advising a nation or you know, a political body in terms of what – what you could encourage them to do um, to begin that healing process, to, to create sound public policy, to raise consciousness. What are the what are the few things that come to mind, you know, right away that, that make you um, that that you would you, you would give as as advice or recommendations for for how to begin to turn the tide a little bit? Well, I think for one, we need to think about how our actions. Um, get the, the repercussions of our actions. So, for example, uh, we move species all over the place. Um, and one of the problems that's happened in the last few decades is that we've gotten really good at moving things around the world very rapidly. Mm -hmm. So global trade is fantastic, and it's been really good for the world economy. Mm -hmm. It's been really good for raising people out of poverty, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But it comes with, with a price, mm -hmm. and we need to pay attention to that price and think about the things that we've done and what we could do to slow down those negative effects. So in particular, I'm thinking about the disease issue is a really easy one to tackle because it has huge negative implications. And yet um, there are ways that we can slow down or at least – and maybe even stop the spread of some of these non-native pathogens. Mm. So you know, whenever we move live animals around the world or plants, we need to think about, well, what's on these plants? Mm. You know, in the – 1950s, um, for example, we were in a time period when, uh, like, USAID was trying to help out other countries, other societies, by promoting economic activities that could help them raise money. So we were helping um, people plant soybeans in places that was a good place to grow soybeans. Um, but we also helped people start things like frog farms. Mm. Um, so we people raise frogs on farms so, so that they could sell frog legs. People like to eat frog legs. Mm. Frogs are pretty easy to raise, even in really high densities. But they figured out that there's a few species that are really easy to raise. One mm. of them happens to be the North American bullfrog. Well, now, unfortunately, there are North American bullfrogs being raised in farms all over the world, from Brazil to the Philippines. Mm. And when those North American bullfrogs escape from those breeding facilities, they not only cause problems directly because mm. they insert themselves into those food webs – but they bring with them all the microbes that live on them, mm -hmm. this, both good and bad. And it's those bad ones that we need to really, really worry about. So, you know, there are things that we can do 
to um, to regulate that. Maybe one, one quick follow up on that. How does how does climate change fit into all of this? Right, there it seems like there are a variety of different elements to what's causing this decline in uh, in numbers within animals. Is is climate change in your mind the the number one issue, or is it more uh, issues like the fungus that you were talking about? These these communicable uh, problems that can wreak havoc on. Uh, entire species of, of animals. How do you how do you sort of rank priorities in terms of what what's the most important, what's second, third? How do you how do you envision those? Well, that's a re- I mean again that's a that's a really tough thing mm-hmm. to to handle because these things are all intertwined. Yeah. actually, and especially climate change. I mean, the thing about climate change that is so important is that that people have to realize is that it's a global issue, right? And um, we can deal potentially with some of these other issues like invading species. Mm-hmm. We can deal with them locally, um, countries, municipalities, states. There are ways that we can deal with those things. Mm-hmm. But how you know the climate? You know, it's like that's bigger than yeah. any one group. And I think, I think you know, I think it actually leads to some pretty good potential possibilities where we can learn to work together. Mm-hmm. We have to we have to learn to work together mm-hmm. because if we want to live lives that include uh, you know productive uh, a productive world then mm-hmm. you know we want a world that's predictable. Right. Um, and climate change you know gives us a lot of unpredictability mm-hmm. and in many cases uh, very scary sort of uh, options of what could happen. So I you know I wouldn't so much rank things, but I would say that um, climate change is something that we absolutely have to deal with. Mm-hmm. We can deal with that, but we have to deal with it at a kind of a high level in certain ways. But we, we can't just do one thing, basically. Mm-hmm. We have to do all of these different things at the same time. Vance, so much, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. 